You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with Evan Ratliff and Aaron Lammer. How are you guys doing? Doing great. I'm really excited about this podcast. Evan, are you excited because you just put out a movie? I am excited about that as well. And that's something that people could go check out at atavis.com, a new story that we have, which is actually a documentary film. It's called The Last Clinic. It's amazing. Uh, it's like a full, full almost full-length movie. Yeah. yeah. It's 5.0 minutes, 50 minutes. 5.0 minutes costs $4, $4.0. But before you're doing that, you're listening to Max on this week's podcast talking to... Susan Arlene, you guys, I interviewed Susan Arlene. That is amazing. I don't think you should even introduce it. It's so amazing. Everyone knows who she is. Right. You're not listening to this podcast and uh, unaware of who Susan Arlene is. But you might be unaware of our sponsors, Tiny Letter, the simple, powerful way to send an email newsletter from the good people at MailChimp, and the new dig. Uh, they are the same dig you used to know, except much better and newer, and they have a new homepage. D-I-G-G dot com. Dig dot com. It's Thanks actually, it, uh, it's, pretty cool, it's great. Actually. You should yeah. check, just check it out. I, I, uh, I predict that if you look at it once, you will look at it again. Susan Orlean, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. It's my pleasure. Uh, you are definitely uh, the most interviewed person that I have interviewed so far for this thing. Like a, a uh, short Google search yields oh. all kinds of inter- <laughs> yields all kinds of interviews you've done. Uh, do you like these things? Do you like talking about how you work and and your process? Do you enjoy it? Actually, I enjoy it a lot. And y- you would think that it's something you get a chance to talk about a lot. I mean, so many of my friends are writers and. I suppose the fantasy is that we sit around talking about process and what we're trying to do with our work. But, of course, we don't. We talk about our husbands and kids and boyfriends, you know, the usual stuff people talk about. So I find it kind of a pleasure to actually talk about the work that I do and what I am trying to do. It's kind of fun. You're you're one of... uh a surprising number of people who we've had on the show who got their starts at an alternative weekly. Um, you're, you started at the Willamette Week in Portland, right? That's right. Uh-huh. 
I wonder if we can just kind of start there, sort of your earliest days as a reporter. Did being in an alt weekly help you get better? Why, why was that where you landed? I I landed at an alternative news weekly, um, both by design and by accident. You know, that was a moment when alternative news weeklies were just exploding and you know, had incredible energy and vitality and um, just about every city of any size and even some very small cities had them. And it was a really exciting place to be. For me, it was especially exciting because I knew always that I did not want to be a daily reporter. I never, I never was... Um, I think I, I always knew that I, I was not motivated to know things first. And I think to be a good news reporter, you, you really need to have that burning desire to kind of learn the stuff before anybody else learns it. I, I was just always more drawn to what you would call feature stories, stories that were not pegged to a news event. And the great thing about alternative news weeklies is there was plenty of room for that. Um, and also, you know, they were full of other people like me, young, right out of college. Um, I think the perfect analogy would be, you know, it was what the Internet is now in terms of the excitement and the feeling of possibility. When you think about yourself as, as a young reporter, what were you like? What were you struggling with? What were you? Uh, what were you not good at when you worked for Willamette Week? Probably a lot more than I know, <laughs> but <laughs> I was really learning. I think from the very beginning, um, the challenges that are always there for a writer are are there, which is what makes a good story, what's a good narrative, and how do you structure a good story? I think when I first was getting started. Um, the big challenge is confidence when you're a young writer and having a kind of authority in your tone that isn't easy when you're 24 <laughs> to have right. and you don't feel it as a person and you certainly don't feel it as a writer. Um, and I was trying to find my voice as a writer, which I think is – a huge challenge and and took time for me as it does for anybody. But I was actually, I was always pretty good at coming up with story ideas and, and feeling the inherent flow of a story. And that was just something you kind of had a sense of when you started, you sort of knew a good story when you saw it. Yeah. I think that I, I knew a good story or probably what's more accurate is I I would get really excited about stories and I'd bring that excitement to it and that would kind of drive it forward. Um, and, you know, I would feel that they were great stories and part of what made them work was that I was genuinely excited about it. So I always had that knack. That came very easily for me. And um, that's a huge challenge when you're first getting started is just – you know, thinking, well, gosh, I don't know, what do I, what do I write about? <laughs> yeah, what the hell am I supposed to do now? Did and, did the uh, 
did the stories that excited you then, are they similar to the ones that still get you going now? Believe it or not, they are. I think that there has always been a kind of connective thread in what has interested me. Um, subcultures, people of who are passionate about something, stories about communities, um, you know, that they... They've always been the things that I've been drawn to, and I've certainly ventured beyond that, but it's, they're fairly consistent. I want to get back to something you were saying before about uh, sort of confidence being the big um, challenge when you're a young reporter. I feel like um, that internet analogy is a good one, too, that alt-weeklies, uh, I mean, we're talking what sort of like uh, mid-80s here, mm-hmm. is that right? And actually, a little early '80s, right? Like so. So there's this all this like uh, sort of vibrancy and fantastic young writing coming out of these newspapers, um, but only a certain number of people um, kind of made the leap to uh, bigger publications and bigger magazines. Um, how did how did you make that leap? How did you go from uh, an alt weekly in Portland to you know, writing, writing for Esquire and the New Yorker and places like that? I think the first thing that I did was I began imagining that I wanted to work at places like that and that it was doable, which sounds a little kind of too naive, but that's, that's the truth. I mean, I just began thinking this is what I want to do and I'm going to do it. I... I made um, a couple of connections with uh, editors at these bigger publications to begin with, um, most particularly at the Village Voice. And I said, you know, I'm out here in Oregon, and I know a great story out here. And why not give me a chance to do it? Because I'm here, and you don't have to... You don't even have to send anyone out to do this story. And to my great surprise, um, they agreed. So if you had to like give advice to uh, young writers now, the step one would just be like actually make the pitch, like go for it? Oh, yeah. I mean, to begin with, absolutely. You know, you can't sit there thinking I'm going to be discovered someday. Um, you have to show initiative and 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 really you know, make yourself useful, which is something that I, I always say to younger writers, you know, that that's a lot of it, which is make yourself useful. And for a writer, the number one way to be useful is to come up with really good ideas. I mean, your ability to write a beautiful sentence will ultimately be important, but I don't think you wow an editor into giving you an assignment by a beautiful sentence. I think you wow them by saying, I've got a great story idea. And they think, wow, that is a really good story idea. We'll give it a try. And that's what I did. I approached the Village Voice. And then um, actually, I I was approached by Rolling Stone because someone I... Someone who had worked at Willamette Week was an editor at Rolling Stone, and he continued to read Willamette Week, and he called me and said, I like what you're doing. 
why don't you write for Rolling Stone? And that's one of those phone calls that you think, I'm being totally punked. <laughs> right, this is a hoax. Who, who's doing this? Um, and, you know, from there on, it was really one foot in front of the other, which doesn't sound very dreamy, and I certainly had a lot of wonderful lucky breaks, but it was also being very deliberate about sending my clips to um, magazines and, you know, taking assignments in national publications that were not necessarily the places I wanted to end up spending my whole career, but I knew it would give me a chance to be published nationally and that I would get noticed. So that, that worked. (laughs) I mean, every, there are many different ways to get, you know, to get to write for big magazines. So I would never say this is the one and only way, but I think when you're starting at a little paper in a, what was then quite a, a small city, on the far, far edge of the country and wanting to get yourself noticed, you have to be pretty determined and methodical and and strategic. And, yeah. you know, think, okay, look, I need, I, I really want to end up writing for The New Yorker, but I'm not going to go from Willamette Week to The New Yorker. I'm going to work my way up through these other means and try to do, try to do good work. Was that a goal, like when you were 24? Was the New Yorker the goal? It was, uh, believe it or not. I mean, it really was... Um, from the minute I started reading The New Yorker, it was the place where I thought, this is, where I, this is what I've been trying to do, and this is where I want to go. So what was it like the first time you saw your byline in there? I had a heart attack. Um, <laughs> I, I really, really had the you know it was just like I couldn't believe it I I was so excited that well I should actually back up to say that at when I first began writing for the New Yorker I was writing for talk of the town and that was in the era where there were no bylines Ah, um, so you had so you had to wait a while to actually see I had to wait, or lead uh, right but I to see my words in the New Yorker font was pretty damn exciting and I just I think I was on cloud nine for a very long time I think the thing you're saying about uh, the idea being the thing that's going to wow an editor is is interesting I think it probably holds true even today sort of on the web like uh, the idea for a story you probably have to execute the story now to get an editor's attention but the idea is the thing that's really going uh, to catch someone's eye. How, how do you find stories? How do you come up with the ideas for these things? Um, that's the never-ending challenge, um, especially if, like me, you don't cover a beat or have any, um, you know, a lot of the stories that I get most excited about come to me through serendipity. I think to find good stories... One is to keep an incredibly open mind and open eyes. And every day, everywhere you are, um, as a matter of a kind of mental practice, um, I'm looking and listening, and 
I feel like I'm always primed for right. something to present itself and for my response to be, wow, that's a great story. You're um, always you're always open to finding a story. Always. Uh, no matter where and what I'm doing. And that's partly my personality and it's also partly a, a habit that I've developed. But then there are times when that kind of zen attitude is marvelous, but you really, really need to think of a story because you really need to get an assignment. Um, and then you have to go through a little bit more of a process. And what I generally do then is I used to go, and this is talk about a, a piece of ancient history. There was a very big newsstand um, near the New Yorker offices that had newspapers and s from all over the country and all over the world and specialty magazines. And when I was really stumped for an idea, I would do a number of things. And one was to walk over to that newsstand and just flip through stuff w that was there. And, and you know, just with with it in mind that I was looking for some little thread that I could yank and that would open up a story idea for me um and and it worked often then i would also begin thinking what what am i thinking and what am i interested in right now what's going on in my life or around me or in the lives of the people around me that might make a good story and i literally just sit down and kind of um uh, shuffle through the mental index cards of what's on my mind, what's been conversations I've had recently. Um, yeah. There's like, I'm, I'm now shuffling through like uh, your, your sort of back list of stories. And there's two that come to mind that feel like maybe they came up that way. One, one is the uh, like uh, real estate in Manhattan story, mm -hmm. like the apartment wars story, which I feel like you must've been talking to people about. Right. And uh, the umbrella one too. Right. Well, exactly. I mean, in the case of the real estate story, uh, that was a period of time where I was really interested in writing about jobs, jobs that I I really wondered what they felt like to perform. And I don't know how or why it just kind of smacked me one day between the eyes that the idea of a, a real estate broker in Manhattan would be so interesting because you get to go into all these buildings and see people's lives at, you know, usually people are buying or selling apartments at a moment of some drama in their life. They're getting married, they're getting divorced, they're getting a kid, they got rich, they got poor. You know, it's a, it's almost always a dramatic moment and it, it just was one of those things where I thought I want to write about what the day-to-day -day life is like for a real estate broker here. And then I just went to a couple of people I knew and said, do you know a, a broker who would be interesting? You know, I, she didn't or he didn't need to be unusual or odd as much as a, you know, a person who would be an interesting lens through which to see that world. And, right. and which was great. The thing with the umbrella inventors, this is somebody who lived in my building and he was such an interesting guy. And 
um, he was an artist, and then one day he very casually mentioned that he had just gotten a patent on a new umbrella, and I thought, you're kidding. I mean, it was, who gets a patent on an umbrella? And it was fascinating. Um, you know, no, normally I, I avoid writing about people I already know or friends, but if the story is, is really good, then this was one where I just thought, wow, this is a great kind of oddball story. And it, and it was. You've written about like all, all these different, like a hugely disparate group of stories. I mean, all these different topics, you know, real estate and umbrellas and surfers in Miami and, you know, orchids in Florida and high school basketball stars in New York. Is there, are there themes that emerge from that, full body of work are, are are there things that are consistent in all of your stories i feel that there are themes um and and you know sometimes this will just sound very broad but i think that what i'm always drawn to is and frankly i think all writing and all art is concerned with the idea of how people find meaning in their lives and how they make sense of the the otherwise rather confusing experience of existence <laughs> and you know that that's certainly a very um a very big theme well the idea of such a big theme might seem odd um, when applied to smaller stories like the profile of a children's party clown, it it in, certainly informs the way I think about stories and and what I'm trying to understand, um, even if I don't spell it out so explicitly in the writing. When, when you're profiling someone, how much time do you spend with them and? How close is that relationship? I mean, how how open do you get with the people that you are writing about? The amount of time is really dictated partly by just practical circumstances, what my deadline is, how much time they'll give me. Um, so it's it really varies. It's everything from you know days to weeks. And in some cases, in my first long profile that I did for The New Yorker of uh, an African king in Manhattan, I spent time with him on and off for about six months, um, partly because it was my first big piece. And I I was nervous about making sure I had enough material. But there's no set amount of time. It, it really depends. If someone – in fact, a profile that I'm really proud of – I ended up only having um, about an hour and a half with the person. Which piece is that? Um, it was a profile of a Hollywood agent named Sue Mengers. Time, more time is always great, but I think you can always work around a time limit as well. Um, when you asked how open I am with people, you know, I don't try to be deliberately aloof or, or opaque, but I don't make a big effort to, you know, have it be about me. 
Um, but I don't try to make myself seem like this cipher who they're not allowed to get to know. Right. What do you? What sort of steps do you take to get folks to open up with you? You know the the tips that I can offer on that are just a few practical things. Like generally, when I go to meet people, I don't begin by asking questions, and um, I if I can possibly spend some time with them where we're just hanging out or it's very informal and I'm not taking notes and I'm not quizzing them, I feel like it goes a long way. And especially being able to accompany them as they're going about their daily business. That's not always possible, but if you can do it, it's it's wonderful. And then as far as having people open up, I think in my experience, people have a very, very refined sense of authenticity. And I think if they think you are truly there to hear and listen and learn about who they are, they're going to respond to that. I don't think there's any special trick that you can do. I think what's really required is that you really are genuinely open to hearing what they have to say and you're not there with an agenda and a list of questions that you just need to get done and and people respond to that i think they they sense it and they um you know some people are harder than others believe me it's not like you show up and you just give them a genuine smile and then it's all <laughs> easy <laughs> right as hard as it is, it's, it's probably not surprising, but it's amazing how consistent that point has been in these conversations. I mean, just uh, almost everyone we've talked to has said, like, you know, you, you've got to find that place or it's not going to work. Right. And, you know, in a way, it's, it should be um, comforting to writers getting started, which is there isn't some special technique that you have to study and learn. Uh, there's a, uh, The truth of the matter is... You meet someone, you pay attention to them, you're not already planning how you're going to portray them. You're actually there to sort of learn who they are. And people know that. People are very, very good about figuring that out. And giving, you know, if you have the time to be leisurely and make them feel that you, you're available to learn as much as they're willing to give you, that's great. But, of course, that's not always possible. Um, The more time you've got, the better. But you can also make up for a limit on time by having unlimited genuineness and interest. The other sort of question with with timing is, like, how do you know when you're done? I mean, I know that you... Uh, don't start writing until you're done reporting. How do you know when you're done reporting? And, and how long did it take? I mean, you said your first piece for The New Yorker, you reported for six months. How long did it take to sort of develop a feel when, for when you knew, like, okay, I've, I've got it now. Like, I've got the story. Right. Um, well, there are two things that happen. One is that um, in the beginning, when you're starting a story, every single minute of every day you are learning something new and 
um, you're just sort of on fire because it's just one new thing after another. And you're your learning curve is so steep and so dramatic that, you know, you're just learning, learning, learning. It's this incredible immersion into a new field. There will be a point where that starts to flatten out. And instead of learning something new every minute, it's sort of every day. And then it's, you know, every couple of days. And in, and the reporting you're doing tends to go revisit material you already know. So when that learning curve flattens, that's when I know that I've begun to kind of come around to the other side and that the the timing is approaching where I'm ready. I'm just not learning that much anymore. And similarly, there will in the beginning Every single person you talk to knows much more than you. And if you're doing your job right, after a while, you've begun to synthesize all the material you're learning from all of these different people. And there's a point where you begin to realize that you actually know more than the people you're interviewing. They may know their piece of the story more deeply, but you know more broadly the full story, if that makes sense. No, that makes total sense. And I, you know, there's probably an art to, to uh, not revealing that you know the whole story. Right. And, and certainly, you know, it's not that you want to begin being competitive with the people you're interviewing, but there's just this feeling that you'll have where you think, oh, you know, I have heard this before, or I talked to the person on the other side of that conversation, so I actually now I now know both sides. So, you know, I had a revelation um, some time ago that writing, or certainly the kind of writing I do, is has two very distinct parts. One is you're a student, and the other is you're a teacher. When you are in the phase where you're a student and you're simply being bombarded with new information and absorbing. And and then it's almost like a sponge that's oversaturated. It starts flowing back out instead of being absorbed. And that's the point where you are ready to be a teacher. And that's when you know you're ready to write. Right, so that metaphor breaks down on, on basically on reporting and writing, right? Absolutely, and obviously there's a, one missing piece in there, which is before you really begin to write, you should have a, a hiatus where you're thinking about what you've learned and what it means and what you're going to try to teach, basically. I wonder how challenging this stuff is for you now. Like, is it still hard? I mean, was it ever, I guess maybe it was never all that hard, but you've been doing it for uh, a long time and you've been doing it at a really high level for a long time. Do you still get like, do you ever get nervous? Do you ever get like, I, I, I was talking to someone last week who's pretty like accomplished magazine writer and, and they finished a piece and were just like, it's terrible. It's just absolutely terrible. And it wasn't, it was great. Uh, do you ever have that kind of feeling? Oh, for sure. Um, but, you know, you ask a really good question because, you know, every now and again, I'm a little shocked to realize how long I've been doing this and how many stories I've done. And 
But number one, the the amazing thing is that every story it's brand new. Um, there, you do not build equity in in this business. It's, I mean, you do in terms of a reputation. You always start from zero, so every story is a fresh challenge. And and frankly, I think in some ways you you expect more from yourself. You if you've written a lot and people come to expect that you're going to do good stories, then you in a weird way feel like you have more to lose. You're in a position to disappoint people rather than sort of thrill them because they'll think, oh my gosh, you know, this turned out really well. Like instead it's, well, this isn't as good as the story you did last time. And so there's no question (laughs) that there's a a kind of pressure that's actually different. Um, I'm not sure that I would say it's more or less. It's just a different kind of pressure, which is you can only fail. (laughs) <laughs> that's not that's an optimistic way of putting it yeah well that maybe is a little strong but um and there's always the fear which i think comes with having done it for a long time that you're repeating yourself and that's right. something that actually is a genuine concern that you think oh i always structure things the same way or oh i you know, this is so much my kind of story. And you worry that you are becoming a kind of imitation of yourself. That's something you hear all the time from fiction writers. I mean, I think like, you know, people just kind of retire after a while because they're worried that they have kind of got nothing left to say. Do you ever have the urge to like just write a completely non-Susan Norlini story? Every like, time. Just write like a really... like. Uh, hard news political like DC piece or something? Yeah, I mean, or I feel like every time I begin, I think I'm going to write this one really differently. Um, not so much that I'm going to pick a different subject matter, but that I'm I'm just going to write it really differently. And And then in the end, it ends up sounding like me. And the funny thing is you spend the first half of your career wanting desperately to have a a voice that's distinctive and recognizable and then you sort of go to the other side of that thinking oh my god all my stories sound the same um the totally obligatory adaptation question we can keep this really short i think you're probably the only person we're ever going to have on the podcast who's been portrayed by meryl streep in a giant Hollywood movie. Um, did that change your work at all? Did change? I mean, I assumed it changed your life some, but did it change your work? It did not change my work. And that's a, a good distinction to make because of course it changes your life in many ways to kind of have that sort of public persona um, that even a very successful writer will never have just because it's a different kind of, um, publicness to be portrayed in a movie. It didn't change my work. I mean, in the beginning, I was worried and thought it might. Um, no, I wasn't sure how it would change my actual writing, but I thought, well, now is everybody I'm going to approach going to feel they know me? And right. and that they know a totally fictionalized version uh, of you? Right, or, or even just 
there was a way that I felt that I, you know, I write so, I frequently write about people who are not subscribers to The New Yorker, who would not go to see Adaptation. You know, they're of a different world. And I was afraid that the publicness of that movie might make it so that I couldn't approach those people with the sort of anonymity that I always had. And whether that's happened or not, I I don't know. I mean, I don't think it's qualitatively changed my work in a way that I see. You um, you wrote... Very early in the life of the Kindle single store, you published a Kindle single. Um, do you think you'll do that again? Yeah. I Well, I really had fun doing that. And I think that that whole avenue of publishing is really interesting. And there's so much freedom. And there's so many stories that are of shape and size that aren't quite write for magazines that are are perfectly suited to that kind of form of being published. So I'm all for it. I think it's great. I think it's um, a really exciting and liberating um, opportunity for writers. Is there something appealing about that length? I mean, uh, do you think that there are stories that you have done previously that maybe would have worked better at say 20,000 words instead of 10? Definitely. Um, Do you think that about every single story? No, I don't. I'm not obsessed with stories having to be super long. And I also happen to think that it's more often that a book of 300 pages would have been a lot better at 120 pages rather than a magazine piece was too short. I, I tend to think that I mean, I just was a judge for the National Book Awards in nonfiction, and it was remarkable to me what huge percentage of those books would have been fabulous 120, 200-page books and were kind of flabby 350-page books. Um, you know, book length is it's an arbit- somewhat arbitrary size that we've gotten used to and there's nothing special about it there's no reason that a book needs to be 150,000 words except that the business model for what books need to cost to make it work for publishers is that they people are willing to pay x dollars for a book of x size and less willing to pay for that for a book that's 120 pages. So, you know, it's like um, moving from LPs to digital music. You know, it used to be that you needed 12 songs for an album, and it meant that there were, you know, four really good songs, two decent songs, and the rest were crummy. And they were just filler to fill up the whole size of the album. But it's not that there was some concept of an album that it was based on the technology is what I'm trying to say. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I I feel like, you know, one of the great things about this moment we're in is that you can write a story as long as it's supposed to be. And uh, you don't have to put anything out there that's going to be crummy. You know, we have uh, I talked to folks who are kind of starting uh, magazines on the web and stuff and, and they, they uh, a lot of people have this instinct to sort of like start with a really rigorous publishing schedule 
mm-hmm. and really hold themselves to it. And I don't, I don't understand uh, where that urge to put out something. We said we'd have a story on Wednesday, therefore we're going to put out this piece of crap. Right, and I think that there's, um, I do think that removing um, the limits of length, while it's very liberating, it also requires a kind of self-discipline that not everyone has and you know yeah i mean you need i mean it's really easy to have a really bad piece that's long (laughs) (laughs) and i think that you know people tend to um the lazier way of writing is writing long which is funny you would think it's the other way around it's a lot more challenging to tightly structure and edit a piece and keep it, you know, really compelling all the way from the beginning to the end. So we're going to have to apply some good common sense and, and strict editing. But the good thing is that there's not an end goal of X words. I mean, if a really good piece needs to be 18,000 words, then that's it's fine if a really good book finds its natural length at a modest size, but it's really good. Um, there's no reason that that can't be published at that modest length and not, you know, you don't have to pad it out to make it a 300 page book that feels like it should cost $29. So yeah. Totally. I mean, I think the other thing that's that's appealing about this moment that we're in is that authors, you know, ha- uh, for the first time have a little bit more kind of like equity or stake in their stories. You know, I mean, the Atavist, uh, who we do this podcast with, they split all of the revenues from their stuff with the authors. And it kind of it gives you like a, gives the writer some equity in the piece. Right. You know, if it's a big hit, it'll be a big hit. If it's the, uh, you know, if it's the American man at age 10, uh that's going to keep kind of like paying them on down the line. That, which leads me to that last question that I really will let you go. You now have 250,000 something followers on Twitter, which is, you know, fits in with this idea that, that the writer is sort of at the forefront and can push their own stuff and put out their own stuff. How, how has Twitter impacted your work and, and, and your career and, and your journalism? Uh, it's a, that's a tricky question, and I'm not sure that I completely know yet. I will say that on one hand, I feel um, that I'm on an ongoing daily book tour in the sense that I'm I'm guessing a, a lot of those people are people who've read my work and are kind of interested in, in seeing more than just what's on the page. And I think that there it, it creates a sense of a community that is actually very inspiring. I mean, I'm a soon to announce. I mean, I felt that people were really cheering me on to get my book done. And I know that sounds really sort of dorky. And if someone isn't on Twitter, they would say, "Oh, geez, you know, this is what's this is why our civilization is ending." But in fact, I would very often post, you know, that I was going to try to write a thousand words today and, and people would cheer me on when I finished the book and I announced it on Twitter. I, I mean, I felt thrilled and excited by the 
energy of people just saying, yay, you know, congratulations, I can't wait to read it. It brings you closer to readers. And I think for any writer, a truly strong sense of of connection to who you're writing to is a great thing. It makes you think about the the wonderful privilege of being a writer. The idea that people turn to you and say, tell me something interesting about the world that I don't have the time or opportunity to go learn. Entertain me, engage me, make me feel and see things that I wouldn't want know how to see on my own. Twitter makes me feel that every day. Even when I'm tweeting that I had a ham sandwich for lunch, I think for a writer, it brings you back to the real reason you're a writer, which is to see the world and then share it with people. Thanks for listening, folks. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Evan Ratliff and Aaron Lemmer. Our show is edited by Lauren Kirchner, sponsored this week by Tiny Letter and the good folks at Dig. We'll be back next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.